Good to be here today. Good to see you all here this morning for morning worship service here at Sweet Communion. Turning your Bibles to Hosea 5. Hosea chapter 5. You're reading all 15 verses of that chapter. Let's stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word. Hear this, O priests, pay attention, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O free Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He hath withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm in beth Aven. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. May God give understanding this portion of his word that we read this morning. We're going to take a moment for prayer this morning, and then our choir comes with special music. And then the preaching of God's word. Just before I pray, I just want to uh, thank the Lord, um, especially for Lawrence and Charmone and their work with the uh, Valentine's dinner yesterday. What a beautiful job they've done. And what a beautiful time we had together. I think there was about 10 couples there um, enjoying, uh, celebrating the love that God has given us uh, as families, as couples and uh, I appreciate uh, how 
how much work they put into putting that together to letting us have a good time. The food was excellent. Uh, the music was good. We even had uh, uh, those who cared for the children to, to babysit, and I appreciate all that that was done in that regard. My only regret is that I counted about 11 couples that could have been there and perhaps should have been there, uh, but we're not there. So that's amazing. We had 10 couples that were there, and I count another 11 that could have been there or, or possibly could have been. And, and you don't have to tell me all the reasons why you weren't there. If I don't know already, it's probably not a good reason. <laughs> but I'm thankful for the uh, opportunity to celebrate those kind of events. Um, oftentimes I hear, Pastor, why don't we do this or why don't we do that or why? When do we have time to, to fellowship? And I think we ought to take advantage of those good times that we have to fellowship. And I, I, I'm thankful for those who put such hard work into it and make it such a great time. We even enjoyed the game time as well. What a beautiful time we had yesterday. So thank you, uh, Charmone, and thank you, Lawrence, for, for your hard work in that, in that regard. Let's pray as we thank God and uh, look forward to... Um, understanding and appreciating and sharing the word of God today. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity now to come together, to fellowship, to worship you. We thank you for the songs that we sang that um, brought us into worship, into the uh, thought of worship, into the uh, posture of worship today. We thank you for your word that is uh, selected to be preached that was read uh, just now, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would take in your truth, open our understanding so that we can understand what it is you say and that we can live in obedience to you, in humble submission to you, in repentance, in, in renewal with you, and uh, to, to live to honor your name in our lives. We thank you for a group of believers here today. Uh, we see what's going on in our city, Lord, and, and uh, uh, we are devastated uh, with the death of another police officer. Um, we just pray, Lord, that you would help us as believers all around this city to have a testimony that will bring glory to you and be a witness to people everywhere. We pray for... Uh, Jeremy, Lord, as he uh, labors in that field as a police officer here in this city, that you would protect and keep him safe, um, help and bless uh, uh, Michelle and their family, um, as I know it must be difficult when they hear these type of events, Lord, but help them to trust and to rest in your power, your protection, your provision for them um, in this uh, job that is extremely high risk. So we pray your, your keeping of them. Uh, we pray for those who, who've had sickness and health issues, Lord, that you would just continue to watch over and be with and bless them. Uh, we pray your comfort and your healing on them. And we pray, Lord, that uh, their testimony and their fellowship might be enjoyed again here in this fellowship, in this community. Um, and now we, we thank you as we look forward to hearing your word. Bless and open our eyes to understand it. Challenge our hearts to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated.
Hosea chapter 6 today. The topic is sin, judgment, and a call to repentance. Sin, judgment, and a call to repentance. In chapter 5, there's a challenge put out to the priest as leaders of God's people, they had failed to do the job that God had called them to do. Chapter 6 ties them together with other leaders and the entire nation of Israel. We see that in verse 1. He says, come, excuse me, hear this, O priest. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. We see three groups mentioned here. The priests, the entire nation, O house of Israel, and O house of the king. So leadership and God's people are mentioned here. And what it says about leadership here is that they have been a snare. Look at it says, you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. We're going to see various pictures throughout this chapter. And here's one of the first pictures that we see. The picture is of the, the influence of bad behavior on others. Specifically, the influence of bad behavior of leaders on the people they lead. And the first picture we see here is that of a trap. A trap. You can kind of visualize perhaps a mouse trap is one of the most common things that, that we see. Uh, but any kind of a trap would be the picture here. A trap is something that is set, that is certainly a hazard to others who will come along an extreme danger and a physical danger. It is saying here that the leaders of Israel who were to lead and be a help were in fact drawing them to physical danger and even to death. Who sets up the mouse trap? Not Mickey Mouse or Minnie Mouse or a fellow mouseketeer. <laughs> it's one who don't want the mice around who wants to kill them, who wants to get rid of them. The one here that should be helping the people has instead set traps for the people. That's the picture given to us. So you can see why God will call into judgment the leaders of Israel. And he uses the picture of a trap. He says, you have been a snare at Mizpah, a net Spread. What was a net spread? Well, a net was used to catch any type of animal. Uh, very common in fishing. They would cast out nets to trap to catch fish. A net was one way that, that you could possibly catch a bird. Since you can't fly and move through the air, but you could put a net there and spring the net upon them when they got to the right place. And so this was something that, that another picture, uh, a trap, a net of those who should have been helpful, but in fact were hurting um, God's people. We have an awesome responsibility 
as leaders. Um, you might ask, who is a leader? Well, in a very, uh, in a very true sense, um, we have leaders appointed. We have uh, spiritual leaders um, as God recognizes in the church. But in a sense, as Christians, we are all leaders. God, Jesus said, Matthew 5, let your light so shine. In other words, you are a leader. You are a light wherever you go. And so you have a responsibility to be a good light and, and not be a net or a snare that causes other people uh, to, to, to be injured. <clears throat> Some other pictures. A very common picture in Hosea is given in verse 3. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. And now, Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. The picture is that of a whore. A, in fact, I'm going to leave that for this evening. I want to talk about what that definition means and, and what it means uh, in a true sense, in a natural sense, what it means in a spiritual sense, and what spiritual lesson. But certainly we see throughout the book of Hosea that Israel was looked at as an unfaithful people. Those who were married but had strayed away from marriage and had been unfaithful in, within that marriage and broken the vow of that marriage. God was looking at Israel as having done that in a spiritual sense. And, and, and so that, that is a vivid picture that he gives through Hosea, and not just to speak, but if we said before, for Hosea to live in front of the people because of his wife and the, and the, the, the sinful character of her was a picture of God's people that should have been faithful but were not. Also notice in verse 3, God shows that he is, is omniscient. He, he knows all. He says, I know Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. God is letting us know in his word that he knows the sin of his people. That, that we need to take seriously, that we cannot hide from God. We do not hide from God. Uh, um, it, it, what it means is that God knows, he sees, he knows all that's going on. Now, there are some things that doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't, uh, um, we should have no guilt and, and, and not be, uh, not have anything that, that needs to be hidden. There's some things that, that are ugly and, and don't need to be out in the front. But the fact is that even in that, we cannot uh, keep things from God. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going on in front. He knows what's going on behind the scenes. And um, part of, of sin's nature is to be deceptive is to not be upfront, is to not be honest, to not be open, to not be truthful, but to deceive. God is letting a sinful people know that he knows. He knows. He knows their true nature is given in the second part of the verse. You have played the whore. Israel is defiled. We see, uh, what, this is what sin does. Sin causes us to to. Um, to sin more. When we, when we sin, we, we try to cover that up. 
with other sin. We can see the illustration of Adam and Eve in the garden as they sinned and they went to cover up that sin, to cover up their guilt of that sin. They didn't want to feel bad, and so they covered that up. And it's just a big cover, continual a cover up. And, and God says, look, I, I know. But another thing that sin does is in verse 4, their deeds do not permit them to return to God. Sin it separates us from God, and, and you, you know, even though a person needs to come to God uh, uh, and may even in some sense want to come to God, because of their sin, they cannot come to God. Something needs to be done about that sin issue for us to be brought back to God. And so it's not just like, okay, you did wrong, everything is, is, is okay, we'll forget about that. Something needs to be settled with sin so that uh, uh, reconciliation can take place. And so it says their sin permitted them, uh, uh, permitted them from returning to God. Look at verse 4. Their deeds do not permit them uh, to return to God. So their sin, their deeds... It inhibited or it, it, it hindered them from having a right relationship with God. He expresses it, the spirit of whoredom is within them. They know not God. Let's take a look in this chapter, Hosea 5. There are, there are ten pictures that are given to us in Hosea 5. We've looked at two of them so far. So let's take a look at all 10 of these pictures. Uh, prophecy is, is very visual. Um, it's given to us so that we might see what God is saying, so that we can experience that. That's why God prophesied through Hosea and told him, look, take this wife because I want Israel not to just hear what I'm saying, but to see it with their own eyes and, and literally feel what's going on. So he, he wanted his people to understand and to feel the truth. And, and so he gives us pictures. One picture we looked at is a trap or a net or a snare in verse 1. In chapter 3, I mean, in verse 3 and verse 4, the picture is that of an unfaithful woman uh, designated here as a whore. That, that's a vivid, ugly picture, but it's a picture that's described in Hosea and described in God's Word, unfaithfulness in, in a relationship. Um, as I mentioned, I'm going to get more detailed about that tonight to talk about what God wants us to see from uh, relationships and what he wants us to understand. The third picture we see in this chapter is in verse 5. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. The word Ephraim, again, is just another word for Israel. It's just another word. You'll see that throughout prophecy um, that, that there's different terms used for the nation of Israel. And Ephraim, which uh, was a collection of some of the tribes, we see that in verse 3 as well, and we see it here in verse 5, was another word for Israel. Israel's sin was also causing Judah problems. It says, Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah Judah also shall stumble with them. So the picture we have here 
is stumbling. Think about it. It's easy for us to think about that with icy uh, sidewalks and, and road conditions. Uh, I'd be surprised if some of us in some part this week didn't stumble ourselves. That's not a pretty picture. Um, the picture of stumbling is somebody on unstable ground, right? And not able to keep traction and to progress and to walk and get where they're trying to get. So that's a picture of stumbling. Uh, when, I, when I was young, I used to always laugh when somebody stumbled. It always was just funny to me. And as I got older, <laughs> it's not quite as funny anymore. I always wonder why we got to shovel snow and why we got to put salt down and why we got to be so careful. Can't anybody just be careful as they walk on that stuff? And, but now I know why you wear rubber-soled shoes and, and boots and, and proper foot gear. And, and, and when necessary, you know, you got your arms out and use handrails. When I was young, I used to run up the steps and didn't have to touch a handrail. Now, you know, you, you, you're a little bit more careful. You want that handrail to be secure. Um, you, there's handles on your door as you get in and out of the car. You want to be careful about that. The picture of stumbling is a vivid picture for us. One thing, reason why stumbling was funny to me is because stumbling was always somebody out of control. I mean, the near definition of it. And I always thought of a drunk person because that's what we would see often. They would stumble out of somewhere. Um, they, they couldn't walk properly. They couldn't maintain balance. They couldn't have steady progress to go where they go. They, they couldn't take three steps. Matter of fact, police, when they test, we often see that as a test for drunk driving to see if you can walk a straight line. So a person stumbling is a picture of someone who, who, who has lost their senses and something has happened. They, they, they don't have the balance, the judgment. They are on unstable ground. They cannot progress. They cannot move along and get to where they would like to go, even though they really want to get there. And so stumbling is a picture given to us of Israel as a result of their sin. How does that impact us in our lives? How, how much of our lives are part of stumbling because of the impact of sin on us? Sometimes we don't even realize. It's like that person who, who's had too much to drink and, and doesn't realize they can't move like they used to. And somebody needs to tell them, look, you need some help. You, you're going to need some assistance to get where you're going because the impact of your sin has affected you where you can't do what you would normally be able to do. wonder about God's people today. Why is it that we can't do what we should be able to do? Is it perhaps God wants us to examine that we are stumbling because of sin? And verse 5 says, the pride of Israel testifies. Judah also shall stumble with them. And so we see this area of stumbling. Um, before I get to the next picture, that was picture number three. Before I get to picture number four, I want you to see what happens in verse six. We, we see a picture, uh, verse six shows us uh, um, a false worship. It's not one of the pictures that I included because there, there's not a, a scene that's set forth 
uh, or an, an, or a, a topic or a subject that gives us that picture. But it simply says, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. Here, Hosea, the prophecy of Hosea helps us to understand uh, what happens when sin devastates a people. We often think of people of no longer at the place of worship, but that's not the case. Here, they were trying to worship God. It says, look, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord. So they were actively trying to worship God, but it says that God had turned away from them. It says, he has withdrawn for them, from them. And in verse 7, it tells us why. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. They have borne alien children. Alien children is actually that fourth picture that we get um, here in this chapter. Alien children. But, but what it says here is that they are trying to worship, but God rejects their worship and has turned from them. So we see a people that are involved in worship. The reason why they cannot worship is because they have attempted to worship God along with their sin subjects. So they want to worship God and they want to worship Baal. They want to worship God and the, the false gods of the nations around them uh, uh, around them. And so we see that all too often today. We have to be careful of that, that we do not combine worship with the true and living God with a practice of going after false gods. God doesn't like to be too timed. God does not like to be worshiped while you have your heart set on something else as well. When we're distracted in our worship and don't devote all of ourselves to God, it's an offense to God. That's what Israel was doing. They said, well, God, we're going to worship you, but we're going to worship other gods as well. We're we, we we, we, we just not going to put all our eggs in one basket. We're going to spread it out a little bit and, and see if we can get some benefit from, from worshiping over there. God says, look, don't have a plan B with me. Worship me and worship me alone. Serve me, trust me, and me alone. Put your faith in me and me alone. Now let's look at that picture of alien children. He says, they, verse 7, they have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have born alien children. This is true in a real sense or in, in, a, in a practical sense, because Israel had gone astray, they began to, to, to worship other gods, they had begun to share with other nations, and they had intermarried with other nations as well, and they had done just uh, uh, what, what, what Gomer had done with Hosea. Hosea and Gomer had been married, and after that marriage, within that marriage, she had become unfaithful, and, and it kind of hints that her, some of her children may not have, those later children may not have been Hosea's at all. And she had children from relationships outside of her marriage. This was happening in a real sense in Israel, and God was having uh, his prophet to portray that to 
his people to, to let them see their sin. But this was happening in a spiritual sense as well. In a spiritual sense as well. Is that as they had turned away from the Lord, their children, they were bringing about a whole generation that did not know the Lord. And that's what alien children mean. They, they're alien. They, they are foreign to God. They don't know God. Look, look what it says in, in verse 4. Excuse me, in verse 3, God says, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. In other words, God understands his, the sin of his people. But he says in verse 4, the end of verse 4, For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. This is a people that's called the people of God, but they don't actually have a relationship with God. They don't know the Lord. So there, there is there's a separation. God knows their sin, but they do not know the Lord. God knows them. He understands who they are. And the omniscient God would know that, but he has no relationship with them because they have strayed away from him because of their sin. And as an impact of that, their children, the next generations to come, do not know the Lord either. What a dangerous thing consequences of sin is it affects generations to come we see this alien children picture number four picture number five is given to us in verse 10 what we see before we get to verse 10 is that God has announced his judgment on Israel look at verse 8 blow the horn the trumpet the horn was and trumpet was used as a couple of things. It was a sign of, of, of a call to worship. It is also a sign of a call to arms or that a need to, to, to alert danger. Danger is on the way. Blow the trumpet. Let people know there's danger. This is a warning of God's judgment. God's judgment is coming. And he makes it clear. Verse 9, Each, Ephraim shall become a desolate. A desolation in the day of punishment. And he goes to, to, to give us another picture of why his judgment comes. Verse 10, the princes of Judah have become like those who moved the landmark. Now when you see like those, you know you're getting a picture. This is like that. This is a picture. Like those who moved the landmark. He says, the princes of Judah, the leaders of, of, of God's people, Judah, have become like those who moved the landmark. Now, that, that's a term that's used quite frequently in the Old Testament because God had given to his people Israel a land. And he'd given them some laws to go with that land. One of the laws very clearly was do not move the landmark. Now, what's a landmark? It's, it's something It's very easy to understand. It's like a lot line. It, it determines the division between you and your neighbor, right? We have them in our city. If, uh, as, as I worked several years in the industry as an engineer, I would know how to go and find a, a lot line. You, you can see them in the cities now. Sometimes you can see them plainly. Sometimes they're, they're buried under the ground a little bit because of so much uh, uh, landscaping that's been done. But if you, if you have a, uh, a metal detector, you can go and you can find exactly where that lot line is. And if you're going to have a, a survey of your property, uh, you want to know where that lot line is so you know where to build a fence. 
uh, what's your property and what's not yours. Now, a, a land, those who would move a, a landmark would, would physically move that lot line over so they get a little bit more property. I understand there's a law in the books that if your neighbor uh, uh, cuts, mows the lawn on your grass, on your side of the grass, and does that long enough, that becomes theirs. <laughs> kind of a weird law. So they've been cutting it for years. It, be, it, it becomes theirs in, in essence. And so what they're doing is they, they, they cut the grass a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And what they're doing is they move in that lot line, right? Now, I, I'm, I, I'm not sure how extreme that goes. But this was saying that God hated, he had a disgust for those who were money grabbers, who were land grabbers, who were trying to get a benefit by stealing their own people's land. That's what they were doing. Um, and he, he, he likened the leaders to that. So here we see in verse 10, the princes of Judah have become like those who moved the landmark. Those who steal by deceit and by trickery their, their neighbor's property. Well, one fine example of, of that, you remember Ahab and Jezebel and, and, and Naboth was a neighbor that Ahab wanted his vineyard that was right next to his palace. And so he tried to do it nice and ask him and, and offered him a price. And, and the guy didn't want to sell, which was his right not to do. He didn't have to sell the land. He owned it. Even to the king, he didn't have to sell it. And so Jezebel said, hey, well, I got a plan. We'll get rid of him. And we'll just take that land. And so they executed their plan. They lied on him. They had the, uh, they, they had the, the town raise a party and accuse him of blasphemy. And they took him out and killed him. And then Jezebel, you could just imagine her coming back to Ahab's office and slapping the deed right on his desk. Say, hey, the land's yours now. Take it. Do what you want. The, here's a man who had all that he, he's king. He can have whatever he wants, but he just had to have this piece of land that belonged to somebody else, and he took it um, by violence, by deceit, by trickery. God hates that. And what he's saying is his leaders of his people have acted like that. They've acted like that in failing to lead God's people, and God's going to hold them accountable to that. So we see picture number five. Uh, in the same verse, we also see picture number six. He says, upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. When you see the word like, you're going to get another simile. Something is like something else. God's wrath is like water. That's another picture that, that, that's easy to understand for us. Um, uh, because water, he says, his wrath is, is poured out like water. So we get the image of water poured out. And just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. If you ever had your basement flood, I've had that happen. And you go down there and you see this water on the floor. And sometimes it's, it could be maybe ankle deep or maybe even knee deep. And, and the first thing you think is like, this is ruining my house. It, it, it's ruining the stuff I got in the basement. You might have stuff stored down there in boxes. You think, oh, they're, they're just wet. They're, they're just ruined now. And you want to get rid of that. How do you get rid of water 
in the back. You can't shovel it out. You can take little buckets and pour it out in the backyard. You know, that's, that's just a futile attempt. So, so he, here's this idea. When you see water pouring into something, it's like if you took a cup in your, in your kitchen sink and turn the faucet on and let that water just drip, and it, eventually it's going to pour up to the top, and it's just going to keep pouring over the rim of that cup. It seems like it never ends. Where does it all go? Where does it come from? Where does it end? He said, this is like God's wrath. You can't contain it. You cannot contain it. It overflows and reaches into everything. It gets in stuff that you could not imagine. And it has an impact. So he says, God's wrath is like water poured out, over flood, overflowing or flooding water. Most devastating things is just water in the wrong place. A couple other pictures that I think are, are neat. The Bible gives us pictures, 10 pictures in this chapter. Picture number seven is in verse 12. <clears throat> but I am like a moth. <laughs> to Ephraim. What does a moth do? A moth is just a little insect. But who is like a moth? God is saying he's like a moth. So it's kind of interesting when you think of God being pictured as something so small. He's given, a, he's given us a picture of something. He's saying like a moth. What does a moth do? He doesn't explain it in his verse, but it's, it was all too commonly known that a moth eats away at something and can cause great devastation. Gets into your closet, into your garments, and you're just going to have holes wherever it is. Whatever it eats on, it's just going to eat away. Now what it does is it eats a little bit at a time, and through that little bit of eating, constantly, it brings great devastation. God says, it's just, he's just going to trickle a little bit here, trickle a little bit there, but it's going to cause great devastation. A little bit over a great amount of time, great devastation. I am, I will be like a moth to Ephraim. Something that you ignore. You know, it's in your closet. You don't always go in there. You don't see it when you open the door. You see it when you pull out that cashmere sweater that you love so much and pay so much for. In fact, this is a real illustration. I have one. <laughs> And yes, it did get eaten away. And you pull it out the closet, you go, oh my goodness. When did this happen? How did this happen? Why did this happen? How could I have avoided this? God's judgment is like that. When? Why? How? Oh my goodness. The devastation, just a little bit. But it causes great devastation. In that same verse, another picture of God's judgment. Verse 12, I am like a moth to Ephraim, like dry rot to the house of Judah. Dry rot is an interesting term. As one who does a lot of carpentry work, I understand dry rot. Dry rot is this. When water gets on wood, gets it all wet and soggy, but after the water dries up, the wood appears to be okay. It dries up. You think, hey, 
No problem. It, it's good. It, it's just going to be okay all by itself. But what has happened is that water has settled in that wood and has begun to rot. You don't always see it. I just spent this week working on my ceiling in one of my rooms. And what happened was the, ceil- the, the, the room above that had spilled some water there. And so it had dripped down into the ceiling. And when it happened, this was years ago it happened. When it happened, what do you do when water drips down the ceiling? You do nothing. You try to wipe it up. If it lands on the floor, you mop it up. And you wipe it where you can, but you can't get all the places that it has soaked into and spread through. And so after years, what happens is that you start to see seams in your ceiling where the drywall material has come together. And it was taped and it was pasted over, but now those seams start to break out and start to appear. And you look in there and it's not wet anymore. It's perfectly dry. But the wetness has called devastation that cannot, that, that won't be a, a return, that won't return. It won't return back to the way that it was because of that wetness, even though it is now dried. Same thing happens to wood. And so what happens is, as a carpenter, when you pick up a, wo- a piece of wood or when you see a piece of wood that, that's supporting a wall and you see that dry rot, you look at it first. It may look a little funny because the color may be different, but otherwise it looks to be okay. Until you test it, until you try to nail into it, until you try to put a screw into it, and it just falls apart. It begins to fall apart, and you go, oh, my goodness. This is holding up my wall. This is holding up my ceiling. What's going to happen now? That's what dry rot is. It's wood that should be structurally sound and good, but because a little bit of water has leaked in there, it has devastated it now. God is saying his judgment is often like that. It's like a moth. It's like a little bit of water, a little bit of moisture in the wrong place that went undetected for a long time, but now you cannot ignore it. You get a plumbing bill. You get a a wall repair bill. You go, why? When did this happen? Dry rot is that picture. Let's look at a few other pictures. Dry rot is picture number eight. We get two more pictures. One is in verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, here's the picture. He say sickness. What do you mean? They had a cold? They had a fever, they had the flu, pneumonia. What did they have? Sickness is a picture of their sin. They weren't physically sick. What happened is sin in their lives had happened, and now it got to the point where they could detect it. And the Bible uses this picture to show us what sin is like. He's saying sin is like a sickness or a wound. It'd be another, it's like the the, the picture of a moth or dry rot. It's often 
not easily detected at first, but then it grows to the point where you cannot ignore it any longer. Sin devastates in that way. It starts sometimes in small ways, and it grows and it grows, and it gets to the point inevitably where it cannot be ignored any longer, and it must be dealt with. He says Israel's sickness had grown, Israel's sin had grown in such a way as sickness does, where it now needs to be dealt with. I'll use my own illustration. You know, the dentist says if you ignore your teeth, they will go away. <laughs> So what happens is you have just a little bit of, of, of discomfort in your mouth and you ignore it for such a long time. And then it just gradually gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And then you bite down on something and it's, oh my goodness, I can't eat on that side of my mouth anymore. I've got to do something about it. This is the picture of sin. And what he says here, when Ephraim saw his sickness and due to his wound, so there's sin, but look at it. They're going to figure out how to deal with it themselves. When Israel, when Ephraim saw his sickness and due to his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. In other words, they said, hey, we got trouble now. But that, no problem, no big deal. We got a solution. So we have our sin, yes, we have a problem. But we got a solution because we got Big Daddy Assyria who's going to help us out. He's going to step in in a time of need. So here's an issue, and, and the practical lesson is, is that when we have sin and it begins to cause trouble, where do we run to? We can either run to God or we can run to someone else. Notice what Israel did. It says, they sent, they went to Assyria and sent to the great king. You can read in the Old Testament of, of, of these events because they happened several times, but there's some specific ones in mind. And, and when when Israel was threatened because of, of some other nation that wanted to attack them, they would go to another king in another nation and say, hey, will you protect us? Will you help us out? What's the problem here? They did not go to God. They went to a great king, but they didn't go to God. And that's a picture of when we deal with the devastation of our sin, where do we turn to? We need to turn to God and not to other solutions. Other solutions may seem to work. They may seem to patch up the problem. But God is bringing this to our attention so that we will come to him. The ultimate answer, the only solution to sin. And it says here, he is not able to cure you or heal your wounds. As great as this king is, saying, he is not your answer. What are some of the kings that we go to today? Well, 
I think we go to companies, jobs, we go to banks, we go to credit cards and credit. We go to material things that make us feel better for the moment. Cars, vehicles, clothes, activities that resolve a little dissatisfaction. Could be something as simple as a cup of coffee or something more elaborate like a plush vacation somewhere. But the question is, in our times of need, do we go to God? Or do we go to something or someone else? They may seem to have the answer, but are we ignoring God when we do that? Have we ever just simply said, God, here is my issue. You might show me a means to the solution, but the solution comes from you. Am I starting there with you? Am I satisfied? Am I content with whatever answer you will give me and whatever means that you lead me to? But I want to start with you. It, sim it simply starts with humble submission and prayer. God, I do have a problem. I have an issue. But I want to start with you. I want to, I want to get my direction from you. That's what Israel failed to do. They went right to the king of Assyria and said, hey, basically in essence they were saying, you be our God. You tell us what to do. You deliver us from this evil instead of God doing that. Be careful of God's substitutes in our lives. So that's picture number nine. And then picture number 10 is in verse 14. Another picture of God's judgment. So this is the third picture of God's judgment. The first one was a moth in verse 12. The second one was a, moth, a dry rot in verse 12. And then the third one is in verse 14. And it is a lion, a lion. Verse 14, I will be like, again, the word like, simile, something that is compared to or helps us picture something. I will be like God will be or God's wrath and God's judgment would be like a lion. Now that's, that's a very vivid picture and it's very simple and very easy to understand. Most of God's word is that way. He gives us things in pictures so that we can understand. We say that the prophets and Hosea is such a difficult book, but not when we, we, we simply look at the pictures that are given to us and take from the word of God what he wants us to understand. He says, verse 14, I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. What does that mean? <laughs> well, what do you picture? When you picture a lion, what do you picture when you picture a lion? You picture a great, huge, ferocious beast. And in case you didn't get that picture, the scripture helps us. He says, I, even I, will tear and go away. Now, he didn't say, I'm going to come rub up against you and purr like a little kitty cat. He says, I'm going to tear and go away. He says, this lion is on the attack and he's going to rip to shreds that, the thing that he attacks. 
And in fact, he says, not just a lion, he says, but a young lion. You get the sense there of one that's in its prime, that is strong and has no equal. Picturing God in his judgment. He says, I will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I love watching wildlife um, shows and programs on TV and you watch a lion when he attacks and he does, he attacks and that that buffalo, that deer, whatever it is he attacks, once he, once he brings it down, he, 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 he will bring it to a safe place. Now, for most lions, that's just wherever they kill it because ain't nobody going to mess with them. <laughs> so wherever they want to eat, that's where they eat. Now, the lion is the king of the beast, and notice what a leopard does. He's a little smaller, about half the size of a lion. And so when he kills something, he will often carry it up into a tree so that the lions can't get at it. Lions, you know, can climb trees generally, but they don't like to, and they're way too heavy to get way up in a tree. And so a leopard has that advantage. He'll pull up his, his kill into that tree, and he'll feast there. Sometimes it's too big to eat all at once, and so he'll eat some and come back later another day and finish eating. But what a lion does, he's, he tears, and he eats wherever he kills it. Now, there are some beasts that will play with a lion or try to steal his food. Or he, uh, hyenas are one, but they do that because they can outnumber a lion. But it says here, I will be like a lion. I even I will tear and go. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. He says, once I capture this thing, it has no chance. It's not getting away. It's not going to live. It's not a good story. It's not a good ending. That's what God is saying about his judgment. Once it starts, it's not going to be a good ending. There's no recovery. And then at the end of this chapter, there is a call to repentance. We have seen various pictures of the wickedness, the sin of God's people from leadership, from, from general public. We see... Um, what it's done, the devastation that it causes, and we see God's judgment coming upon them. And then he says this in verse 15, I will return again to my place. In other words, even a ferocious lion, once he's finished eating, what does he do? <laughs> he's finished. He's not a threat. He returns to his place. You, you have, you have, I watch those shows, and, and, and you watch, you watch the, the herd or whatever animal the lion is chasing, and the herd, is, is they all run, and as soon as the lion gets one, they kind of like stop and look back. Like, we can relax now. <laughs> Joe got caught. <laughs> Wasn't us, but it was Joe. Poor Joe. <laughs> but we living. <laughs> so they, they, they're kind of like, he's he, he satisfied now. We know he, he got one. And he's going to eat till it's filled. He says, I will return again to my place. But it says this, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. God's judgment is sitting there waiting until what? Until repentance. 
how that repentance pictured here. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And I think the last phrase kind of pictures what God intends when he brings judgment. He says, and in their distress, God brings distress even in his people's lives. Why? Because he wants to mess with them? No. It's because he wants them to seek him. In their distress, earnestly seek me. Earnestly seek me. Earnestly seek me. Oh, I pray that God's people would be those who earnestly seek him. Do you remember what happened in verse 6? He says, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. There's a difference between that kind of seeking with flocks and herds. They come to offer sacrifices. This is a false worship because they have no intention of turning from their sin. But sometimes God brings a little judgment in there. And after a little bit of distress, it says in verse 15, God's purpose is to have them earnestly seek him. Not come in, 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 in a false show of worship, but to genuinely and earnestly seek the Lord. I will return again to my place, he says, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. God brings judgment to turn people to earnestly, to be earnest seekers of him. It's a shame that we don't often take God seriously until we've had that spanking, until we've had a little sample of it. But thank God for that, because he intends that to bring us to a wholehearted seeking of him. And that's for our good. That's for our good. And that's so we see vivid pictures of what God is doing in the life of his people. He is sending distress that they might come and earnestly seek him. I pray that today that's where our hearts would be. We'd be among those who earnestly seek him. I don't know details of what's happening in, in your life. And things may go well right now, may, may be going well, but there may be some issues there. And God may have even allowed those issues so that you might come and seek him. He brings you to some issues like he did with, um, um, in verse 13, he says, Ephraim saw a sickness due to his wound. Then Ephraim went to Assyria. They went to the wrong place. He, he brings some of these things, or at least he brings you to see some of those things so that you might come to him, not go to someone else. But God wants you to seek him. Are you earnestly seeking the Lord today? You earnestly turning to him. Is there a humble heart of repentance where you acknowledge your falling away? You acknowledge your complacency. Acknowledge that you've been tempted to, to go and seek something or someone else other than the Lord. But now you come earnestly seeking him. You don't have to do something to try to convince me. I don't know. But God says, I know Ephraim. I know them. I know their sin. I know where they are. 
The first time he turned away from them because they came with flocks and herds and he knew they weren't serious. But this time he says, now I've put some distress in their life. I want them to come earnestly seeking. You know the answer? When you come earnestly seeking the Lord, he will not turn you away. He will not turn you away. He wants to be your God. He wants to be your deliverer. He wants to show himself strong in your life. You need to earnestly seek him. Father, we thank you for your word today. And we pray that your people here today will hear your word today and will be that type of seeker, one who is humble, repentant, and who seeks after you and will not accept any substitute for you as their deliverer in their lives. We pray that that will be our attitude. In Jesus' name we pray.